Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 20 is where we're at. We're in a series called Revealed in the first three chapters of Romans. And we have covered the first two chapters over the last four weeks. And today and next week, Lord willing, we will close out this series uh, here in chapter 3 with the first 20 verses this week. And in these 20 verses here in Romans chapter 3, we get a picture um, of really both the character of God and, and a little bit about who God is and also who we are apart from God's grace, what man is. And Paul is going to show us that none of us has an excuse that ultimately when we stand before God one day, we will be out with, without excuse, our mouths will be stopped in his presence, that no one will be able to point the finger or, or say that, 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 that God cannot judge them or anything like that, uh, that all of us stand guilty before God. God. And these verses here, these 20 verses in Romans 3, uh, they give us a picture of one who is righteous and everyone else who is not. And the first eight verses we're going to look at this morning show us kind of the goodness and the character of God and his faithfulness and in his righteousness. And, and, and then in the next 12 verses, we're going to get a, a real picture of mankind. As Paul's already begun painting some pictures for us in chapter 1 and chapter 2, um, you know, and the reason uh, that we all need the good news that, that Paul started proclaiming in chapter 1 when he talked about uh, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, it's the power of God into salvation. The reason we need that good news, the reason we need that power of God into salvation is because of all the other stuff Paul tells us in Romans 1, Romans 2, and here in Romans 3. He is being very thorough, wanting us to grasp just how bad man's plight is apart from God's grace. He wants us to see that no matter who we are, age, stage, uh, ethnicity, background, culture, we all are in need of, of, of a Savior. We, 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 we need the Lord Jesus Christ. And last week, we saw that even the moralistic religious folks need Jesus too. In particular, last week, we were looking at the Jewish people there in Romans chapter 2 and Paul pointed out how the Jews had the law, but they didn't keep the law. They were sinners just like the Gentiles. And in fact, he revealed to us what it looks like to be a self-proclaimed moral person and to be religious, but to be lost. Having our lives marked by hypocrisy and presumption and an unchanged heart destined for God's judgment. And today, Paul's going to anticipate some questions from the Jewish people in response to that to that thorough Romans chapter 2 that we talked about last week. And in his answer, he's going to defend the faithfulness and the righteousness of God because the questions they're going to ask are really going to be aimed at questioning God. And then he's going to lay out his final case kind of like a lawyer would in a courtroom explaining to us just how guilty we are before God. And so look with me at Romans chapter 3, right, as we just continue through. These first three chapters of Romans, listen, Romans is my favorite book. And Romans chapter 8, I believe, is the greatest chapter in all the Bible you got to get through the first three chapters to get there, so don't give up on us. You've almost made it. The first three chapters are, are heavy with us understanding the plight of man. And uh, if you like to think that people are good at heart, at the end of the day, the first three chapters of Romans is for you. So look with me, starting in chapter 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. That little phrase is a quote from Psalm 51.4 from David. 
Verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. Now let's pause here. This verse 8 verses. Now at this point, like I said, Paul is anticipating some questions. In chapter 2, he's laid out how both the Jews and the Gentiles need the Lord Jesus, need a Savior, need to be saved from their sins, and how many of these Jewish people were hypocrites, right? They were religious, and they considered themselves moral, but they were no better off than the pagan Gentiles that they considered the scum of the earth. And he's saying, listen, you need the Lord too. You, you judge people for sins that, that you do as well, and just being Jewish is not going to be good enough. Just having the law is not going to be good enough. Just being circumcised is not going to be good enough. You need be forgiven of your sin, you need personal faith in Christ. And so he's anticipating this question there in those first couple of verses of, so what's the point? Like, what good is it to be Jewish? What good is it if it, if it doesn't save us from God's judgment? Why be Jewish in the first place? What was the point of the entire Old Testament? You know, we could even come in this morning and say, well, if religion doesn't save me, if going to church isn't going to get me to heaven, if knowing the Bible won't make me a child of God, if getting baptized doesn't take care of my sin problem, then what's the point? And in those first two verses there, Paul is asking, maybe you're thinking, why be Jewish? What does it matter? Is there any advantage? Why be circumcised? Remember, that was the mark of the Jewish people. That, it, 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 was there, it was a physical mark to show they were the people of God and they had, were in covenant with God. And Paul's answer, as commentators point out, may sound surprising after reading the first two cha- the, the, chapter 2. Seeing how he's just laid out that case that Jewishness cannot save them. He says, much in every way. There is advantage, in other words. To begin with, you are entrusted with the oracles of God, the very word of God. Paul's point here is that there is certainly an advantage to being Jewish, but that doesn't mean God won't judge you. I mean, you got the word of God, you've got the prophets, you've got the law, God's made promises, God will keep his promises to Israel. They have the very words of God to point them to the Messiah and their need for the Messiah and to point to who the Messiah would be. That word there, entrusted, means it was put into their care. They didn't just hear the word of God. They were entrusted with the word of God to to be stewards, to to share it, and to pass it on, and to even pass it to the Gentiles. But they had failed in that. But see, the word of God is powerful. It shows us our need for a redeemer, and it points us to who the redeemer is, all the prophecies that Jesus came and fulfilled in the New Testament. So, of course, there was an advantage to being a people who had the Old Testament, who were the people of God, and who had the promises of God. And that's obvious. It was obvious, Paul's saying. Paul goes on to imagine someone asking, well, what if some of them were unfaithful? Does their faithful, faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? So since some of the Jewish people that were in covenant here, since they were unfaithful, does that nullify God's faithfulness? Does that mean God, does that mean God will be unfaithful? Is God being unfaithful by judging them? Things like that. And what you're seeing happening here is Paul's imagining them questioning the very character of God, putting God on trial, if you will, calling God's character to account. There's a few things that we see here this morning that Paul lays out for us, and the first one is this. Number one, God's character is flawless. The first thing he explains to them is that, well, while we are, and while you are faithless, God is faithful. He says, by no means, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. And then I mentioned he quotes there from Psalm 51, 4. 
Remember that in Psalm 51, David is confessing the sin of adultery. Right? If you're less familiar with the Bible, um, King David, a man after God's own heart, he messed up and he committed adultery and then he went on to commit murder. And when David is praying and confessing that sin of adultery and that sin of murder, he declares that God is just in his judgment. And he's quoting that. Pointing to God's faithfulness and his truthfulness. And Israel's faithlessness did not nullify God's faithfulness. See, God is faithful, though Israel largely was not. God is faithful, though you and I many times are not. God still here in 2019 will save any Jewish person who believes on the true Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. He nullified his promises. Anyone can be saved. God is faithful to his promise. Anyone who will repent and believe the gospel can be saved, but he's faithful to all of his word. And what they had missed was, he's not just faithful on his promise to, to save you if you believe. He's not just faithful on keeping his, his promises to his people. He's also faithful to his promise that he will judge the sinner. And he's just as faithful to that promise. God is truly faithful to his word. He keeps his promises, the ones to bless and the ones to curse. The ones that bring life and the ones that mean death. And God is righteous. In verses 5 through 6, he explains that. Paul is making the point that while God is shown to be righteous when he judges the unrighteousness of men, here the Jews, God is not unrighteous to inflict wrath on them. For if he was unrighteous, he could not justly judge the whole world as his word says he will. Right? And, it, and this is... Some, some texts that commentators really have trouble with because you've got this dialogue going on. People debate whether that's even what's happening here, but it's, it's one of the more difficult texts really in, in the book of Romans. And what Paul is trying to say here is while we are unrighteous, God is always righteous. We sin, God does it. We do unjust things, but God always does what is just. And God's doing justice and his showing righteousness does it mean, well, if God is shown to be righteous and just when he punishes me for sin or punishes a sinner for, for being a sinner, then maybe people should just sin so that God can be glorified in his righteousness and his justice. Paul's basically saying, what a stupid argument. You're, you're missing the entire point. God is righteous and God is just, yes, but, but there's no excuse. But why would anyone come to that conclusion? In verses 7 and 8, Paul imagines someone asking that if, if they lie, God's truth abounds... And shows himself just and righteous and judging, which glorifies him. Well, then why am I condemned for that sin? Is what they're asking. Robert Mounts paraphrases this passage this way. Quote, if my rejection of the truth serves to make the truthfulness of God more apparent and thus increase his glory, then why am I still condemned as a sinner? Paul then points out, this is what some people are kind of slandering him by preaching. This lawless short sort of idea. Some people believe that Paul's preaching the gospel of grace and saying you needed to believe on Jesus and that alone to be saved and that keeping the law and doing good works could not save you. Some people believe that Paul was preaching a lawlessness and antinomian sort of viewpoint that, man, you could just do whatever you want to do and just call on grace. That he was setting up a scenario for people to just live however they wanted. But Paul says, the one who preaches that the lawless, antinomian, abuse of grace, they deserve to be condemned. They don't understand grace at all. See, God's grace is transformational in our lives. God changes our hearts and makes us a people that want to keep his word. Puts his spirit in us so we can keep his word. We want to love him and to love others and to live holy lives. 
God does this work in us. He transforms us by his grace. And the law, God's law, was meant to point us to our need for a Savior. But it was not meant to save us. And the Jewish people's inability to keep God's law and God's being shown righteous despite their unrighteousness does not mean that they can somehow sin to God's glory. And the same is true today. Listen. You can grow up in church and you can grow up with the Bible and there is distinct advantage to that because God's word is powerful. If you grew up in a Christian home, that's a good thing and that's a blessing, but it won't save you. If you know Bible doctrine in your head and you can answer Bible trivia, well, that's great, but that won't save you. See, there are things that are good and that are advantageous, but they're not salvific. They won't bring salvation to your life. Only believing the gospel will save you. But that doesn't mean there's no advantage to going to church, being raised in church, raising your kids in church and those sort of things. You don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, sometimes Cannon, my six-year-old and I, have to go in the backyard and he likes to race. I'm not crazy about it, okay? And uh, just wind sprints in the backyard. I thought I got rid of that in high school. But so we go back there. And so I'll give him, he likes a little head start, right? And so he might start 10 yards, 15 yards in front of me, and then we'll go racing across the yard. Now, if I beat him in the race, and I usually do unless I give him too long of a, of a lead, because my legs are longer. I'm not really faster. I just, my legs are longer, right? And so, now, I know every year there's like this thing that's happening, and he's getting faster and I'm getting slower, and I get there's going to be a, a diminishing return. But, but right now, I can still get him, right? So I give him a head start, but if I beat him to the fence on the other side, and I gave him a head start, he might would look at me and say, well, what's even the point of me getting a head start? I still lose. But see, that's on him, right? That's, that's not on me. And then that doesn't mean he didn't have an advantage. It just means he, he's still lost, right? We don't throw the, the baby out with the, the bath water. And Israel had an advantage by being entrusted with God's word. And if you grew up in church, there's an advantage if you sat and hear the gospel regularly or raised up in a Christian home and have been taught God's truth and experienced the love of other believers. But that will not save you. It won't prevent God's judgment of your sin. And that doesn't mean that God isn't faithful or righteous. The problem is not God's goodness or lack thereof. The problem is our lack of goodness. It's not that God's not righteous and God's not good. It's that we're not good and we're not righteous. And Paul's about to get into that. See, we don't get to blame God for any of our mistakes and justify our sin. God's sovereignty over all things does not excuse our responsibility. God is good and sovereign, and we are sinful and responsible. And those two things go together. They're not at war with one another. The second thing Paul gets into here is that while God's character is flawless, ours is certainly not. So that's number two. We are sinful and broken. In verses 9 through 20, and especially 9 through 18 here, Lay that out as good as anywhere in all the Bible. Look with me, starting in verse 9 of Romans chapter 3. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged at all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. What about me, Pastor? Not even one. Verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. That is the synopsis of the human condition. 
In this section, Paul has moved now to his closing argument of the first three chapters. He, he, is, he is ringing out all hope before he unleashes the most hopeful passage maybe in all the New Testament that we'll look at next week. He is summing up his main point, which is all are sinful and broken people in need of rescue. And that no one, whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you were born with the promises or born outside the promises, no one is without guilt before a holy, righteous, and just God. We all stand guilty. Now, did you notice how many times he says all or none or not one? Now, we don't like absolute language, right? You don't like for someone to say, well, you never this or you always this, right? By the way, that's a, that's a good way to, to send an argument south. But Paul's speaking with absolutes. All, none, not one. All are, he says, under sin, turned aside, become worthless. None, not one are righteous or understands or seeks for God or does good. He's hammering the comprehensiveness of the fall, the curse, the brokenness of humanity, that there's not a single person that this doesn't apply to, that we can look good on the outside, but we're still dead and, and sinful on the inside. Why is that, right? He's saying, this doesn't, describe, doesn't sound like every lost person I know. Listen, we can look good on the outside, but that doesn't mean these things aren't on the inside. We walk, we walk around, we do life in interview mode most of the time. Do you know what interview mode is? Best, right, right, you interview someone, best clothes, they're on time, they're 10 minutes early for the interview, they look good on paper, they answer all the right questions. You call their references, it's the three people they can find on earth that love them more than anybody, Right? Everybody but their mama's on there. You call them up, hey, what's this person? Like, oh, he's awesome, she's awesome, she's, you know, this, that, that. It's, and it's great. But none of us are as good as we interview. And we kind of do life that way, right? We give people our best foot forward with our neighbors and at work, and, and they don't know all the, the things that go on in here. But see, God knows what all goes on in, in here. And that while we can look good on the outside to others, we can be sinful and Far from God on the inside. He says none of us measure up. He breaks this down into kind of our sinful condition and our sinful behavior. Look at our sinful condition. He says, first of all, he says we're under sin. That's one of the most important phrases, I think, in all of Romans. You, got, you want to understand brokenness. You want to understand your struggle with sin. You want, if you're here today and you're not in Christ, you want to understand why you keep having the same bad habits and making the same bad decisions under sin. He says, Paul means here, anyone who is not in Christ are under the power of sin. We are captives is what he's saying. And if you want to understand life and humanity and the world we live in today, you need to understand those two words, that everybody outside of Christ is under sin. Douglas Moo writes of this, for the problem with people is not just that they commit sins, the problem is that they are enslaved to sin. We're not just people that make some bad decisions. It, we've got a condition. We've got a problem. We are enslaved, apart from Christ, to sin. We, it, it's in the fiber of our being. Like with a drug addict. When a drug addict puts heroin or cocaine or some strong substance into their body, it, it gets into their bloodstream and it, what? it takes control. It impacts their thoughts and their decisions and their actions and everything they do when they're high on a drug becomes tainted by the drug. And it's that way with us in sin. It dominates us, and everything we do is, is tainted by it. it. It's controlling and dominating, and that is the condition of man apart from Christ. 
This is why behavior modification doesn't work. We need to be set free from something. We can't, we can't just change ourselves. We're, we're, we're slaves in need of freedom. There's chains that need to be broken. A heart that needs to be made new. We need to be cut loose from our sin. It's dominating power. And this is why in our power, we, never, we just don't get better. We might find new ways to sin because we're stuck. We're stuck in sin. It may, it may express itself in different ways in different people, but man will, will find new ways to dress up a dead body, but it's still a dead body underneath the dress up. We are under the power of sin. We are in need of freedom. He says, no one is righteous. No, not one. Mankind does not have a natural righteousness to us. We are so tainted with sin that we cannot be righteous and do truly righteous things. Even the things we do outside of Christ that we think are good are tainted with sinful motives and things like that. We may even do a good thing for a selfish reason sometimes. Ever done that? Sure you have. For instance, if you do something good, hoping it earns you favor with God, you've got a motive there outside of grace. We must look to God for a righteousness that's foreign to us, that comes from outside of us because we have no righteousness within ourselves. We need a righteousness that is applied to us for our righteousness, as Isaiah says, even on our best day outside of Christ, is filthy rags due to what? Sin's power over our lives. It's tainted everything. Listen, I like to cook every now and then, and I'm not great at it, but I enjoy doing it. But I'm also just a little bit of a germaphobe. And I've gotten better at 39. I'm, I'm better, you know, with time. I guess you just start caring less. I don't know. But, yeah, that's what it is. It's the, it's the children. Um, <laughs> but I'm real weird about, like, salmonella and E. coli and all that. So I'm like, you know, if I'm cooking with, like, raw chicken or something, I'm like, okay, and over and I'm washing my hands, and I'm washing my I'm constantly washing my hands. And I've, under, and I've learned, you know, you know, you don't go over here and you don't touch the chicken, and then you don't go over here and not touch the bell pepper or whatever else without washing your hands. Why you eat? Your hands are contaminated. You kind of contaminate everything you touch. And that's the way sin works. We are contaminated. So even good things we go and do, we end up just messing it up and touching it. Man, it it's, it's, we can't even see it all the time, but it's just there. We're infected. It's like it's viral. Our sin is everywhere. And apart from Christ, we can't be righteous in the eyes of God. Eyes of man. If we're just talking about the eyes of man, sure, you can be good, you can be righteous, you can do all that stuff. But in the eyes of God, no. He says, no one understands. Lack of understanding is a part of our sinful condition. We can't comprehend and understand spiritual truth as we should. We need God to help us, to show us, to change our hearts and minds. See, our minds are like a filtering system. Everything you see and apply in your life, you do it through the filter of your mind. We have different ways we see the world according to our individual minds and understanding of things and experiences, but humanity shares a common problem. Our filter is corrupted. And it might express itself in different worldviews in different ways, but we're all, apart from Christ, we don't really understand things as we should. This is why people dream up false thoughts about God. It's why people think they can be good enough to go to heaven. It's why people can hear the gospel hundreds of times and fail to believe. It's why we're broken to our core, that we don't properly understand and process God, spiritual things, His Word, apart from God's grace and part of a rescuer. And part of apart from salvation, part of God acting upon us. No one understands. He even says no one seeks for God. You say, wait a minute. I used to not be a Christian, then I was a Christian. I used to not go to church, now I go to church. I decided to start seeking God. No, you didn't. So, well, how do you know? You don't know me. I'm, I'm just reading the Bible. 
right? Like that old saying, what happened to that? The Bible happened to that, right? Right? I thought I was seeking God. You were not seeking God. Nobody goes looking for God. You don't go and find God. God comes and finds you. Due to humanity being under sin's power, man doesn't naturally look for God. Now, we may look for something only God can provide. We may look for peace or hope, heart change, but we'll inevitably look for it in religion and personal effort and deeds. We'll look for it in other things other than God. Sometimes even good things that just can't do that. This is why we can have so many people that can claim to be Christian but still be stuck and dead in sin. So many people in our country that if they, when they do the polls, it's like, oh man, everybody's a Christian. I'm like, really? Have you seen the news? I don't think they are. It's because these people found what they sought. But they weren't seeking God. They sought self-actualization and personal fulfillment or emotional relief or something, but, but not God. Sought a better life, but not God. See, becoming a Christian, and do not miss this, this is a big point in Romans. And it shouldn't be controversial, but for some reason it is for some people. Becoming a Christian is something that happens to you. Not simply something you do. Something that happens to you. God, in his grace, moves upon your heart. We don't have to understand all the depths of how all that plays out, but we do need to understand that. Because our, our neighbors and our friends are not going to wake up one morning and go, you know what? I should be a Christian. They're going to hear the gospel and they're going to, they're going to be witnessed to and, and loved on. And, and the Holy Spirit of God is going to use all that. He's going to use the word of God to move on their heart. God has to move on our, on our heart. None of us seeks for God. And if you're a Christian today, it's because God sought you. He sought you out. He found you. And you seek him now because you've been found by him. See, sin runs and grace pursues. And we've been pursued and found by God. He says, all have turned aside together, become worthless. Mankind has turned aside from God, his word, his way, his path. And mankind as a community, as a people, have become worthless in the sense of we do not fulfill, we do not pursue our God-designed purpose. We, we, we've collectively missed the point of life, which is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To know God, to be known by God, to love God, to be loved by God. He says, no one does good. Well, wait a second. No one does good. Not, not even one, not one good thing. Listen, like I said earlier, even our good things are tainted by sin. When you read that, just think salmonella, okay? Our, our goodness is contaminated by sinful motives and sinful goals. And we can't even, our hearts are so desperately wicked apart from Christ, the Bible tells us in the Old Testament, that even we can't know it. If I, if I take the world's cleanest, purest water, that I could find on planet Earth, and I pour it into a filthy cup, the water is no longer clean. And that's the way our righteous acts and our good acts become apart from Christ. The virus infects everything. And then he gets into our behavior. So first, that first section, he's really just kind of talking about, it's like, it's like a condition, right? You don't seek, you don't understand, you don't do good. It's just like trapped in sin, in, under sin, crushed by sin, a captive to sin. He says, and this is kind of what it looks like in your life. He talks about their words. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is in their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. He's quoting Old Testament Psalms here. He's using the word that they would have known and heard to, to, to point out and say, listen, it's always said this. This is not new stuff. Jesus taught that our tongue and our words reveal our hearts. 
What is in the heart ultimately comes out of the mouth. The heart is a well and your mouth is a bucket, right? That's the, that's the analogy. And we like to say, well, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean what I said. And what that means is I didn't mean to say that out loud. I didn't mean for you to hear it. Jesus says you did mean it. It came from your heart. The better thing to say was, wow, I didn't know that was in my heart. That's true. And believer, your heart's not perfected, so bad things can come out of your mouth too. You got a new heart, but it ain't a perfect one. Listen, we are a nation. We're a, we're a world of liars. People lie on their tax returns. They lie to their bosses. They lie to their spouses. Sin has corrupted us to the core. To the point that we don't just lie, we, we, we put our lies on scale. There's white lies and little lies and you know, all these kind of things and tiny lies and big lies. and It's just kind of like, God just says, they're all liars. People spew forth horrible things about people. He talks about it here. Curses and bitterness. Look on the news. Look on social media. It's run them up with curses and bitterness. People are, people are going to be shocked one day. <laughs> people are going to be shocked one day when they stand before God and find out he had Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. But what, God? You were perusing the web? He was absolutely perusing the web. Huh? Every word will be brought to account. Digital curses and digital bitterness and digital slander and digital lies are just as wicked in the eyes of God. And celebrities and politicians and other public figures are just as much made in the image of God as you are. And cursing and showing bitterness towards someone you don't know is no better than doing it to your wife or your husband. With our words, our words condemn us. Our actions. He says their feet are swift to shed blood. In a more general sense, it shows just how tainted our actions are, right? Because you might be saying, well, I haven't wanted to shed blood. You know, our actions, we, we do things that we're, we're quick to do things that we know are wrong. And by the way, the seed of murder is hatred. And hatred can manifest itself in many ways, some of which involves words like we just spoke of. Our, our culture is full of hatred. We've dehumanized each other. The sign of the lostness of our culture. Feet, quick to shed blood, quick to get violent, quick to be mean and harsh with our words even. And then he talk, points out our recklessness. He says in their path, verse 16, and their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. Listen, humanity apart from a redeemer, a rescuer, a savior, we just bring ruin. We, we, we bring misery. We mess up even good things. How many of you can with me look back at your life and see ruin and misery that you brought to yourself at different times? Things that happened in your life that were just bad things. And you look back and you kind of go, you know, some of that's on me, right? We, we, we're reckless apart from God's grace. People, people say they want peace, but they don't have it. This is the way of peace they have not known. They don't know it. We live in a culture filled with worry and restlessness, fighting and disunity. This is why unity and peace in the church and in the Christian home is so important. Because we are to show a lost world something different than they may be experiencing at home or at work and in their communities. When he talks about irreverence, he says, he sums it all up in verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the core of the issue. Mankind does not treat God as God. We don't fear him, revere him, worship him, stand in awe of him. 
in our very core, there is a natural tendency towards irreverence towards God. As we talked about a few weeks ago, we've displaced him in our hearts. We don't treasure and obey God's word. We take his name in vain. We use his name as a curse word. We don't heed his warnings. We don't see God as good and beautiful and worthy of living for apart from Christ. We're irreverent and unfearful of God. In fact, we revere man more than we do God apart from Christ. Paul's point is simple. We're all sinners to the very core. And we need to both be forgiven of our sin and freed from our sin. Uh, We need the slate wiped clean, but we also need the power of sin broken in our lives. And that only comes through the gospel. And we need to understand something. While we are held sway by the power of sin apart from Christ, God is righteous and just and must judge sin. And that brings us to the third and final idea here is that while God is character flawless and while we are sinful and broken, we are accountable to God. Look at verse 19 and 20. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What does he mean here? The point seems to be that if even those who have the law, who are under the law, entrusted with the oracles of God, right? The nation of Israel he was speaking to here. If even if, if they have their mouth stopped before God, then we all do. If God shall judge those who he gave his promises to, he shall certainly judge the world at large. Remember, we all have law. Even the Gentiles, he's told us earlier, have law. Not the law, but law. We have conscience and we have creation and a sense of right and wrong. And, and we're, we're all going to be held accountable by God. And our mouths, are gonna, we're going to be speechless before God apart from Christ. And there's not going to be an argument. Since the whole world's going to be held accountable. Not only is God good and faithful and righteous, and we are sinful, but we have to give an account for this. Paul has already told us in Romans 1.18 that God has revealed his wrath against the unrighteousness of men. He's like pointing ahead to a day of wrath. And Paul says by works of the law, you can't fix it. You can't be justified. You can't keep the moral law or the Ten Commandments and walk away justified in the eyes of God. How good would good enough be? And what would you do about all the times you've already broken those laws? There is no good enough. We're under sin. We're tainted. We're warped. We're... We're held captive apart from Christ. Paul says through the law comes knowledge of sin. See, the law doesn't save us from our sin. It grants knowledge of it. In other words, it shows us just how far short we have fallen. Sinners hear things like this. Thou shalt not lie, right? You hear that. You hear the Ten Commandments. We put it on the wall and say, thou shalt not lie. You don't walk away from that feeling free. You walk away from that knowing you're guilty. Say, thou shalt have no other gods before me. You don't have I'm free. You know, oh, man. Think about all the ways you've broken that. You feel guilty. The law shows us our guilt. It shows us God's best, and it reveals things about God's character, but it does not save us from our sin, and it does not grant us forgiveness, and it does not grant us freedom. And every single one of us will give an account to God. And it's got, he says our mouths will be, people's mouths will just be stopped in his presence because there will be no excuse. It's like when you get caught red-handed, Right? Catch a kid, you think they might have did something, one of our kids anyway. Hey, did you do, oh, they've got all kinds of excuses, right? Or I think it was someone, I don't know. You know, they get real squirrely. 
But you catch them red-handed, and it's just, you know, totally different. And that's us before God, right? Deer in the headlights. Calf looking at a new gate. I'm from Alabama. We've got lots of these. We're just nothing to say. Mouths will be stopped before God. No excuses, only accountability. And the question is simply this. Will there be someone to speak for us? Or will we be defenseless and condemned? Mouths stopped as lawbreakers. Or is there hope? Well, let me go back to Romans 1. Romans 1, 16 and 17. We quoted Romans 1, 16 again last week. Let's go back to it again this week. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, Paul says. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. In other words, everybody. Verse 17. For in it, in the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The only way you and I can stand before God and be deemed not guilty instead of guilty is to be made righteous, though we are unrighteousness, unrighteous. And God has revealed a way for that to happen. He has revealed this righteousness in this path through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God to us. And that can mean a few things, but one critical thing it means is this. It shows us how we can be made righteous in the eyes of God. In the gospel, we learn that Christ, yes, he came and he died in our place Judged for our sins, condemned for our sins, but it also means he lived the sinless life that we couldn't. He lived and died in our place. Don't miss that. So that when we believe the gospel, our sin is gone and his righteousness is ours. We're going to park on that for the whole time next week. And when you repent and believe the gospel, you get forgiven. You get justified before God. You get made righteous in His eyes. And the resurrection power of Jesus Christ lives in you through the Holy Spirit. And you experience freedom and life change because the power of sin is broken in your life. And we're not perfect this side of heaven, but we're changing. And we're being transformed day by day into the image of Christ. See, in Christ, in Christ... We're no longer under sin. We're set free from sin's enslaving and power. And we're, in, we're not under sin. We're in Jesus. Our reality is different. While we were unrighteous apart from Christ in Christ, we are righteous in God's eyes and are pursuing righteousness in our lives by His grace. And while before we didn't seek God in Christ, we can seek God in His kingdom first, as Jesus says, for He has become our heart's treasure. And where we had all turned aside... We've all been turned around in Christ. I'm no longer about worthless pursuits. My life has meaning and purpose. Heard Pastor Charlie Dates say, some of you, nobody's more surprised that you're here this morning than you are, right? He's turned us around. Good deeds? So, oh, you don't do, man, there's nothing good you can do. No one is good. No, not one. Then you get over to Ephesians and he says, in Christ, he's prepared good works for you. You see, my condition, your condition in Christ has changed. We have a new heart, and in Christ, my words aren't perfect, but I, but I hate lies, and I love truth. I want my actions to glorify God. I hate hatred. I desire to love my neighbor, not be violent towards my neighbor. I have a peace that surpasses all understanding. Come on, not having peace. I have peace that surpasses all understanding. And my path that was ruin and misery, God, as the psalmist has said, has set my feet upon a rock. He set me in wide places. He makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside still waters. His point is this. Your reality is totally different in Christ. A whole new realm of living. And it's God whom we now fear. 
while the law brought knowledge of our sin and made us feel guilty and condemned, Jesus comes and takes our sin, as the Bible tells us, as far as the east is from the west. See, in Christ, we have a new reality. And daily, we have to choose by grace to walk in that. Let me ask you, do you have this new reality? Do you have this new reality? Or are you still under sin? Trapped in sin. Enslaved to sin. Stuck in sin. You, you've tried to get better and you just end right back up where you were. And, you, and you're just trapped in guilt and in shame. And, and, and it's just like it's suffocating you. And you're like the weary and heavy laden Jesus invites to come to him. Jesus offers you a whole new reality. And believer, are we living in light of our new reality? Are we letting our lives be characterized by these things that Paul talks about in Romans 3? And who do you know? Who do I know? Who do we know that needs to be set free? Who do we know that's under sin? Who do you know who needs to hear the soul-freeing gospel of the Lord Jesus? In other words, as we've been saying it, who is your one? Who is your one? Who's that one person here in 2019 that you're going to pray for and share the gospel with and work towards and asking that God would save them this year? Do you have that one yet? Be praying, asking God if you don't, God, who should that person be in my life? Who do I know that I can be sharing the gospel with? Let's pray this morning.